huge grace just to share another time in the Word with you. I have one job this morning. It's to take the words of Scripture that were just read to you and help you to understand them and then believe them and then walk out of here and live them. That is always our hope with the words of God, that we would understand them. What do they say? What do they mean? That we would believe them. How am I doing in light of these words? And that we would go and live them together. So that's a a pastor's job. May God be gracious to us in it this morning. We're preaching through a sermon series called Jesus. Seriously, we're deep diving in the biblical book of Hebrews together and walking from the beginning to the end. Today we're hitting three or four beautiful verses together. All right, before I... um, Oh, hold on. Somebody was messing with this. Let me just uh, change one thing. Okay. Great. Before I get to the text, I want to walk through a word that you as Bostonians are not going to love to hear, but we're going to talk about it. I'm going to put it up on the screen. Here's the word. It's the word obedience. Anybody ever actually heard this word before who grew up around here? Wow. Okay, that's a good thing, because our culture generally recoils from this word. In fact, we have worked hard to like, not have this be a thing in Bostonian culture. We don't do obedience. We don't do obedience, the word, the concept, because we don't do authority. And obedience intimates authority that has the right to call you to something, to command you. Uh, At every point, our culture has rejected the idea of authority, beginning with the authority of God, moving on down to any other authority that you could name for me. We've been like, yeah, no, we we don't want to go there. No one's going to command me. I'm not going to submit to anyone. Now, for some of you, there are legitimate reasons for that. You have been hurt. You have been treated unjustly. You have been wounded by sinful authority in your life. Teacher, pastor, father, husband, coach, whatever it may be. That is real. And I want you to know that I know that that is real. We're not dealing with that explicitly today. If that is you, we want this to be a perfectly safe place where you can talk and process and heal if you have been sinned against by sinful authority. What we don't want you to do, what we don't want to do, is to then throw out the goodness of the authority of God or the rightness of obedience to Him. See, when we open our Bibles and we come to the clear and bright and beautiful and life-giving teaching of Scripture we see a ubiquitous, all over the place, unapologetic, unavoidable, inescapable call to obedience. You can't avoid it. To do what God tells us to do. To live as God calls us to live. One of the things that I often do in getting ready to preach to you is I take the text of Scripture and I rewrite it as if a Bostonian was writing it, or like if I was God, this is what I would expect it to say having grown up around here. By doing that, it then allows me to come to the the real words of God and see the juxtaposition. 
Too often we just read Scripture and just blow right past it when almost every word in your Bible is supposed to jolt you and surprise you and challenge you. So I did this with Jesus' great commission. So I wrote it as if a Bostonian was Jesus. And here's what I wrote. All recommending has been given to me. So go into all the world and, and make suggestions. Baptizing in the name of the advice columnist and the co-pilot and the life coach. That's our holy trinity. Teaching people to take my ideas about human flourishing into consideration. Does that sound familiar? There's a little bit of punk in there, but this is what I was working to do. This would be our gospel if we ever had a Jesus show up in our day. This is not the biblical Great Commission. I want you to hear this one with me and see some of these words. This is Jesus. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Now, if that scares you, I totally get it. Spending some time thinking about what these words and don't mean is so important to do. For example, in John's letter, he says, for this is the love of God that you would obey his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. In other words, a gospel-wakened soul no longer sees Christ calling us to things as a threat or a burden or shackles or a handcuff but it sees them as life. When we have peace with God, we see that what God calls us to is the most joyous path imaginable. But I want you to feel the difference. This is the gospel life. Our hearts are changed, and we are now on a course to obey Christ in all things. I'm not saying that we obey perfectly. I'm saying that we go for it. Something in us changes, and we say, what are you calling me to? and I want it. Now, some obediences come really easy. So you know this at home, right? When Grace commands me and says, vacuum the stairs. I love that command. Am I the only one that likes a vacuum cleaner? Like taking a dirty, messy space and making it super clean? That's like my thing. So when she says, you shall vacuum the stairs, that's an easy obedience. I put on my headphones, I listen to something, and I get that thing perfectly clean. If Grace says to me, hey, you got to take Julia gymnastics and stay there until she's done, I command you. That's an easy obedience. I get some car time with my girl. I get to watch her do some of her crazy flips and gymnastics. But then I sneak out because there's a basketball court at the Saugus Y, and I get to work on my post moves for an hour. If the cord is taken, I put on my headphones and I sit in this comfortable chair that they have at the Saugus Y and I I read a book. I'll obey that command at any point. It's very similar with the Bible. Some of you walk through here and you see some commands of Jesus and you go, I got that. So the Bible says, hey, lift your voice and lift your hands in song to the Lord. Some of you are like, I love that command. That's easy for me. I'm expressive. I can obey that. Some of you come across the biblical command to show hospitality, and you say, this is awesome. I love opening my home. I love 
baking cookies and having people come and spend time with me. I can totally obey that command. Many of you love the Bible's clear teaching on sexuality, that inside of marriage it should be fruitful and frequent and fun and free. And you go, I'm in on those commands. I love babies. I love my wife. And I love to make and receive love. I can obey. 1 Corinthians 7. Let's do it. Easy obediences. But then there are hard obediences. And these are the obediences in particular that I want to press into with you this morning. These are the ones when you read it or you hear it from Christ and you go, seriously? You're going to ask me to go there? Those obediences are the ones that our text is about. So before I hit the text, I want you to get in your mind, you, some of the hardest obediences that the Lord has put before you in this season of your life. Get them in your mind right now so that these words can land on you. Let me give you some help, what I mean. Maybe it is God's call on you to live with and love a difficult child. Maybe it's a newborn and they're totally out of their minds and they're not cooperating at all with what you thought newborn life would be like and you are finding your heart growing angry and cold toward this precious child that has just been given to you and you know you're called to be selfless and patient but that is a hard road. Maybe it's a toddler who is totally out of their mind. And you come to church and you see all these other kids that seem to be sweet kids who obey and do what they're told, and then you get home, and you know the little kid at the end of The Incredibles? His face turns red and he shoots up into the sky? This is the child that you have been given. And you know that you are called by God to love and lean in with and show grace and patience to this child, and you're like, I don't know if I can do this. Maybe you have a teenager, and you are now on that insane roller coaster, okay? So there's some days when you're like, I love this kid. They're going to be great. And then there's other days when you're like, what did we do bringing this child into the world? And is there something in the manual that says that I can take them out of this world? Teenagers are not often lovable, and yet Jesus says to you, Love them. Do not exasperate them. Change your parenting style as they grow. Work at this thing. And, and you say, that is much too hard. Maybe it's not a difficult child, but a difficult parent. Maybe you are a teenager, and it's your parents who feel like they're out of their minds and just don't get you at all or are not even trying to get you. And you know you're called to love and obey them, but your heart doesn't want to. Maybe you're older and your parents are aging, even dying, and you have no idea what to do with this season, and Jesus is calling you to faith there, and you don't have it. Maybe your parents are growing older, and they're not dying, but they're getting super annoying. (laughs) You know how this happens? I'm like in the middle of all of this, so... You know all the hard obediences I have. I have older parents, and, and I 
I am now an older parent, so I'm like on both of those ends. But you know what I mean, right? Like at some point it's like I'm saying what I want and I don't care. Wow, you look like a mile of bad road. Like what's the age when that's now appropriate to say? And you know, Jesus says, honor your father and your mother all the way down. But you just want to you wanna check out. That's a hard obedience. Maybe you're in the middle of a difficult marriage. Maybe it's year one and you have no idea what just happened, but the honeymoon is over. And you're really realizing this is not the Death Star, you know, that has escape pods. So you and C-3PO and R2-D2 cannot, like, just get off this thing. Obi-Wan Kenobi cannot save you now. In marriage counseling, you don't pay attention to all the things because you're just so excited about getting married. And then six months in, those things that you ignored are actually there. And you realize, oh, man, this is going to be hard. Maybe you are 21, 31 years into your marriage, and there are now layers and layers of sin and unforgiven sin just piled on top of each other, and you just don't have the gas anymore to be holy in that marriage. Maybe you would never actually get divorced, but you find your heart just going, I'm just going to kind of coexist in this thing until it's over. And Jesus' command to husbands, you don't want to hear it, And his command to wives, you don't want to hear it because your heart is checked out. Maybe you are single and you are ticked about it. And you know that you're supposed to be content in Christ and his grace and his gospel. And taking this season of your life to serve others, but you don't want to. And you're angry and you're bitter and defensive. Maybe your hard obedience is loving an enemy. Is anybody there right now? Is this not the most inappropriate command of Jesus to us? It sounds great like on a coffee mug or when you just read it devotionally, but then when you have an actual dirtbag in your life who is sinning against you and is out for your harm, and Jesus says, you've got to learn to love this person personally. I'll deal with justice. You just get in there in love with the love that I showed you when you were my enemy. (laughs) That is a hard obedience. Maybe it's the command to sexual purity. You know what Jesus calls you to, but you're just not interested. Maybe it's the command to embrace the sex that he assigned to you, and that's a struggle for you, a hard obedience. Maybe it's giving, and you love money, and you fear not having money, And so you struggle obeying to give. Maybe at work there's an unjust policy and you know Christ is calling you to say, hey, this is not right because it's hurting the people in this workplace or the people that we serve. But you are scared that if you say anything, you might be unemployed on Friday afternoon. I could go on and on and on. Here's my point. The gospel life is filled with very hard obediences. Jesus did not say, take up your latte and follow me. What did he say? He said, take up your cross and follow me. 
if you are facing any of those or a totally different hard obedience that I haven't mentioned, and I'm sure, I'm sure that you are. Here's what I want you to do with me today. I want us to look to Christ together. That's where our help will be found. Now, I know that sounds crazy to Bostonian ears because you're expecting me to now say, you can do this because you're an awesome Bostonian. You got this. You would say to me, hey, what I actually need right now in this hard place is a, a great pep talk. Give me a motivational speech like Hoosiers. I'll get out there and do it. Or you might say, can you just run through the list of like five or six things that I need to keep in mind? Just give me the punch list. Or you might say, why don't you just actually stop talking and just hand me a self-help book? That will do it. I was in Costco or BJ's reading through the books while Grace was buying stuff, and the new hot self-help book is called You Are a Bad Dash Dash Dash, How to Stop Doubting Your Greatness and Start Living an Awesome Life. The thing about the Christian life is that we've given up on that nonsense. We've looked in the mirror, we've looked at the train wreck that is in our wake, and we've realized, I am not a bad dash, dash, dash. I need a savior. I need the power of God to me in Christ if anything good is going to come of this story and of this life. Christians look to Christ. And so we're going to take our eyes off of ourselves and we're going to get them on Jesus and we're going to see that Jesus faced the hardest obediences ever. And he got there. And he calls us there as well. All right, with all that in mind, let's hit the couple of verses of Scripture. This is the biblical book of Hebrews. We're just looking at three verses. Katie read them to you before. I want to start in the middle verse because this is where we tend to get tripped up. So here's Hebrews 5, verse 8. I'm going to put it up on the screen for you so you can see it. Although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience. Although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience. Okay, that is a wonderful and mysterious statement. Jesus had to learn obedience. Okay, let's first talk about what this does not mean. This does not mean that Jesus moved from a state of being really disobedient until he figured out and finally started to obey the Father. This does not mean that Jesus kind of was a punk who sowed his oats and did what he wanted, and then as he grew, came to a repentance and seeing that, that his way was wrong and got on the right road. That's not what this means. This means that Jesus moved from being untested to tested, or untested to proven. A couple of illustrations. Our kids love American Ninja Warrior. All the kids in this church love that show. Imagine if you had the greatest potential American ninja warrior ever, and he's like in his backyard just swinging on trees like Tarzan and jumping from house to house and dodging bullets, just amazing. He cannot win the contest until he or she actually gets in the arena and runs through the course from beginning to end. Everyone feel that? The potential to master this thing is there, But until they get in that arena and jump on those things and swing on those things and do these other miracles that a 44-year-old could never do, 
until they get in there and run that course and feel what it's like and walk through it, their obedience is just an idea. It's not real. That's this right here. Or think about just the sweetest ride imaginable. Let's say they went out and manufactured the perfect car. Tesla, Lambo, whatever it would be. Comes off the factory line and there it is. It is not enough for the engineers and the software people and the tech guys to tell you in Car and Driver magazine this car can handle anything. What do you have to do? Got to put the key in that car and get it on the road and take that thing for a ride. So maybe you start in Vegas and you take that 200-mile road that runs from Vegas to southern Utah. I was on that once. I'm not totally remember why, but it's this flat road. You know the, the one that Rango was on when he fell out of the back of the pickup truck? <laughs> that road. And that's the first test for this car, right? Let's see if this thing can grab asphalt and break 150 miles an hour. Let's say that you got in that car and you pinned it and it just took off and it hugged the curb and it was responding beautifully. Great. What happens when you get to Utah? Anybody know? The mountains just explode out of the ground and there's this crazy incline straight up for a mile. Let's see how the car does on those curves. Does it stay within the lines? Does it respond to sharp turns, inclines, and declines? Then maybe you take that thing up to Minnesota in the wintertime and see how it does in the snow and the ice. And then, I don't know, where is it? Wicked Swampy, New Orleans, South Carolina in the summertime, somewhere down there. Just see if it can handle the rain without hydroplaning. And if it's made it all the way through all of that, where do you take that car now? You take that car to Massachusetts and you see if it can actually get through the Callahan Tunnel and see if this thing can make a rotary on Squire Road, which you crazy people drive in and see how it responds. And if it makes it all the way through, now you know this car is legit. This car is for real. That's this verse right here. Jesus had to learn obedience, experience it in real time. Jesus' moral perfection was just an abstraction until he actually obeyed God in the realities and the travails of your experience and my experience. He learned what it was to please God. We only get one real snapshot of this in your Bible. It's this cool story when Jesus is about Colin's age, 12, 13. And in that age, in those days, it would be like a 21-year-old today, moving from childhood to manhood. That was the line. At that age, you could get married. You would be finishing up your training and your trade and starting to work beside your dad. Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem from Nazareth for the Passover when he was exactly that age. The family was there with extended family, doing their thing of worshiping the Lord. Jesus was in the temple at that age, and he began to step into what he knew that his father was calling him to. And so he stayed behind. Joseph and Mary and all the kids and all the cousins got in their caravan and started to walk home, but Jesus wasn't with them. About a day into the, to the trip home, you, you heard, you know, Kevin! No? Home alone? On the plane? All right. The mom realizes, Joshua, that's Jesus' name in Hebrew, 
You got Joshua? I thought he was with you. We thought he was with you. He's nowhere to be found. So then they hustle back to Jerusalem. They're looking everywhere for him. And where do they find him? They find him in in his father's house, in the temple. And he is chopping it up with the scribes and the Pharisees. And he is beginning to embrace this identity that he had come to realize through his love of the scriptures was before him. And Jesus and Mary say, what are you doing? And what does Jesus say? Didn't you know? You know, I'm 13 now that I would be in my father's house beginning to get about his work. And what does Joseph and Mary say to Jesus? They say, no, son, you need to come back with us. And what does Jesus do? Beautiful verse of scripture, it says, and he went down with them, and he came to Nazareth, and he lived in subjection to them. Now, why do I tell you that story? Jesus was learning obedience. Do you see it? He needed to feel what it was like to not be on the same page with the authorities that God had given him, and yet in his love for his father to submit to his earthly authorities and obey them. And he did it beautifully. Now question, did Jesus' obedience come easily? Did Jesus just fly through this thing like, you know, You ever have just a really easy baby that was our Cali baby? It was like, did we even have a baby? She like potty trained herself. She taught herself how to read. She's going to the fridge at night for her own milk. I'm like, this is unbelievably easy to be a good father to this kid. Was Jesus' obedience like dunking on an eight-foot rim? Was Jesus' obedience like the Patriots getting to the Super Bowl this year? Just ridiculous, right? The Titans and the Jaguars. Easy. Brady could do that with a broken thumb, right? Easy. No. In fact, the total opposite is true. You got to feel this. No one ever faced a tougher obedience than Jesus. Nobody. We feel this two times in the text. Here was the first one. Go back for one second. He learned obedience through what he suffered, and that was set up from this verse before it. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Okay, let's work these words. In the days of his flesh, what's that? When he emptied himself of his divine superpowers, Jesus was not like vision from the Avengers, right? He's wearing like real people clothes now. But vision is not a real person. He's a superhero. No, no, no. Jesus was a man, fully. In those days, when he would feel it like you and I do, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. What does that signify? That the posture of his life was crying out to God in prayer and petition. This is not Jesus saying, give me what I want, and it is not Jesus just saying, help me. It is Jesus saying, I can't do this without you. I long to obey you, but I need your help. This word offered up points to that for us. The only time this word is used in your Bible, it is sacrificial, meaning it's like an offering up to the Lord of the whole thing. 
John Owen says it like this, awesome. Prayers and petitions here does not just refer to the mere supplications of our blessed Savior, but they accompanied the offering of himself. They refer to his soul and his body, his whole life as a sacrifice to God. Don't you love that? In other words, when we see that Jesus offered himself to God in prayers and petitions, that is shorthand for he fully entrusted himself to God. His prayers were a sign of the posture of his heart. Let's say that we had a crazy parent in this room who was like all in on their kid's athletic career, right? That's a big Bostonian thing. I'm all in. How would you know that they were all in? Miles on the car. They know the directions to every high school like in the state because they've been there twice. Thousands of hot dogs eaten at those awful snack shack, snake shack shops at the Little League fields. Wow, you really were committed to your kids' Little League games. And you met anybody who was involved in a startup and like their whole life was seeing that company move to success? How do you know? They're at work at 4.30 and they're home at 8.30. They got a tattoo on their bicep, you know? Bitcoin, we're going to make this thing work. Zip car, I was all in. How do we know that Jesus was all in on obedience to his father? Here it is. He offered himself. Prayers and petitions are a sign that he was saying, I need you. What kind of prayers and petitions? Is this like your 90-second prayer on your way to work in the car after you check the weather and the traffic? No. Loud cries and tears. Every time those words are used in your Bible, they accompany the pouring out of someone's soul. That's a life and death word right there. Loud cries and tears. Now it's interesting because if you read all of your Bible, you would not explicitly see a place where Jesus is praying with loud cries and tears per se stated. But every commentator says that this refers to the fiercest of Jesus' obediences, going to the cross. In the garden, Jesus cried out, in prayer. You got to be with me. On the cross, Jesus did cry out in prayer. Psalm 22. Why have you forsaken me? And if we tease that psalm all the way to the end, it's a prayer of great faith and confidence in the Lord. Do you feel the intensity here? Jesus's obedience did not come automatically or easily. This was no like fake, easy test of his purity. It was prayed for. It was begged for. It was screamed for with tears. You have to help me obey. You have to help me do what is right. And then we get at the end, and he was heard. He was heard. To be heard in Scripture means two things. It means in one sense that whether or not God gave you what you asked for, he heard you because he accepted your prayer. Then there's a second sense of this in Scripture that says, hey, you heard me. We sang this to begin today for a reason. You heard me from your mountain and you delivered me. You answered 
my prayer. Heard me can mean either of those. So we know without shadow of a doubt that the first one applies in Jesus' fiercest obedience. His prayer was accepted by the Lord. But what about the second one? Was Jesus' prayer heard in the sense of, was he answered? Was he delivered? Did God give him what he cried out for? I say yes. We know that if we only look at this at the level of, did God spare him from the cross, that the answer is no. And in the garden, he did pray, Father, please take this cup from me, which was biblical language for don't make me endure this suffering. But tied very closely, and the final refrain of that prayer was what? Was, Father, please take this cup from me if possible, and yet not my will be done, but yours. In other words, what was the fundamental, foundational, final prayer of Christ facing his fierce disobedience? It was... Let your will be done. I am so committed to obeying you and you have to give me the strength and the resolve to get there because I cannot do this on my own. I know what I want, but more deeply, I want what you want. Was that prayer heard and answered? Again, John Owen says it like this. Jesus' mind was strengthened against the terror of the impending events. His praying enabled him to be fully composed and to actually embrace God's will. In other words, obey. And he did. Last verse, how did Jesus do with his hard obedience? Blow you away. And having been made perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. How did Jesus do with his hard obedience? He got there. He stared the hardest obedience imaginable in the face, what he was asked to do. He moved from incomplete, uncertain obedience to complete, perfect, finished, total obedience which fitted him perfectly to be the savior that you and I needed. Feel this with me. Jesus' obedience was not just for kicks. It wasn't just so he could finish the race and get like the championship belt. Oh, the best man ever. His obedience was going somewhere. It was going for your salvation. Fulfilling all that was required for him to save you, and to save me. Can we just revel in that gospel sweetness together for a second? Because of his perfect obedience, Christ is the pioneer, the forerunner, the source of forever salvation for you and me. He has saved us from the guilt and the condemnation and the power of sin and the fear of death. Our salvation is secure because of the obedience of Jesus given to us by faith. That is good gospel news. But the verse doesn't end there. Who is that salvation for? It is for all who 
obey him. Here comes that word again, the word that we started for. Only here it is jumping from Jesus' finished obedience, perfect finished obedience, and now it is moving to your imperfect and ongoing obedience. Those who look to Christ as their righteousness also look to Christ as their model. And we go, in the same way that Jesus said yes to his heart obediences, his obedience to the Father, I will say yes to mine. It is not, I'm going to obey so that I might be accepted. It is, I am accepted and now I am going to obey. All right, so here's our question to land on from this text. Are you going after the hard obediences in your life the same way that Jesus went after his? Would you think on that with me in a minute? I asked you to put those hard obediences before you. You've got your list, right? Are you going after those obediences with prayer and petition in a way that says, God, the only thing that matters is that I would please you, that I would honor you, that I would say yes to everything you've called me to do and to be, and no to the things that you have said no to. I'm in. Have you gotten to a point where there have been tears in your eyes and you feel like, I can't even take another step in the direction of obedience. I need you. Do you want holiness that badly? Do you want to be conformed to the image of Christ that deeply? If you do, you have a pioneer, a forerunner, who has blazed the trail for you. And by the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, he will get in there with you and he will walk with you to deeper and better obedience, even in the hardest and the fiercest places. In the same way that God heard the cries of his son, help me get there. He will hear and answer you. All right, let's pray for that grace together. Father, everybody in here's story is different. We're different ages, different sexes, different stations. There's some places where you have made obedience sweet and easy, and we thank you for that. But there are places where we are finding this nearly impossible to get excited about saying yes to what you call us to. So I pray first that the fundamental, foundational, final prayer of Seven Mile Road would be, yet not our will, but your will be done. And I pray second that you would meet us in our weakness, that you would infuse us with steel in our backs, that we might be humble and holy together. We know that there is no joy like being aligned with your purposes for this world and our lives. Help us get there. I pray that with immense faith in Christ who has blazed this trail before us. Hear my prayer. Amen.